Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hi, great, welcome. Um, I'm Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm, I'm the research director here at the, the Women in Public Policy Program, which um, gives me the privilege of hosting this wonderful seminar that we have uh, every week. Um, here at the Women in Public Policy Program, we are focused on closing gender gaps in the area of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And our, um, we learn every week from uh, scholars and practitioners who are working in this space. Today, I am um, thrilled to introduce uh, Zoe Marks, who is one of our WAP fellows and a chancellor's fellow at the University of Edinburgh in the Center for Center of African Studies in the School of Social and Political Science. Um, uh, Zoe Marks' research focuses on gender, armed conflict, and the internal dynamics of armed groups in Africa. And in particular, she's looked at how sexual violence and um, and uh, gender relations are policed in armed groups. It's very, very powerful and important work, and we're thrilled to have you here. And I, I won't take any time because I think we're all very much eager to hear from you. So thank you so much. All right. Um, start, of course, by thanking Hannah and everyone else here at WAP. I've been here since April, and I've had a fantastic time. So it's really exciting to actually have a formal setting in which to engage. But. The, the seminar series is fantastic, so it's an honor to be here. I think I have about 30 or 40 minutes, so I'm going to yeah, try and... We, 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 have, we have about an hour and 10 minutes, so it depends on the degree of conversation. If you want to talk straight, Maximum conversation, but I also have good. maximum information that I'm trying to good. fit in. Then so you're, you're open to questions, then I'm we'll entertain totally them, open then, to then questions. we will um, respond accordingly if you ask us for some air time. Okay, I will try to police the number of questions that crop up along the way, because I've sort of... I'm presenting a kind of intersectional topic. I'm assuming that I don't have too many Africa experts in the room. Yeah. I'm also assuming I don't have too many Civil War experts, lots of gender people. Um, and so I'm trying to bring that all together today. And I'll try to do that in as harmonious and linear a fashion as possible with the caveat that I think in circles. <laughs> so starting us off, the sort of framing, I forgot to give you a, a title page slide that tells title. you what so I'm going over. Yeah, the the title is Rebel Queens and Black Diamonds. So to begin, these are two women from the Sierra Leone and Liberian Civil Wars. There may be other women, but these are gnomes de guerre. So uh, Rebel Queen is actually a friend of mine. It's somebody I've known since 2008, um, and I've anonymized her completely. Black Diamond is a sort of a, a media celebrity from the Liberian Civil War. Sarah Cohen, who's worked um, on, done phenomenal work on wartime rape, has also talked about Black Diamond more directly in some of her research. Um, so I'm actually not going to talk about those two women in particular today, but their, their names are so striking, and I think that they're quite evocative of how we think about women in Africa and women in violence and the sort of sexualized representations of women when they're not being victims and then also when they are being victims. So that's what the, the title is getting at. Gender politics in African armed groups obviously doesn't sell quite as well, uh, but that is what I'll be talking about. So if you're here for the blood diamond story, I'm not giving you that one today. Uh, you're welcome to come to Yale next week and I'll talk about that. Um, but to go quickly, just the overview of my talk, I'm going to begin with a brief overview of conflict in Africa, just to sort of summarize what the trends have been on the continent for the past 30 odd years. 
Then I'm going to switch gears and talk about the discourse on women in war, give you a, a quick summary of the sort of academic discourse and how it intersects with the policy and advocacy environment. Um, and then I'll get into my case study, which is the Sierra Leone Civil War. There will be a map, there will be pictures. And from that, I'm going to talk briefly about my methods, which is usually where people have the most questions after a talk. It's how you talk to rebels, how you find them. So we can talk about that. But um, what I really want to do is get into the stories and the numbers and talk about my framework for understanding what happens in African armed groups and how we understand gender violence in the larger context of sort of gender policing and gender relations. So without further ado. This is... Um, my sneaky attempt to get Comic Sans in all of my lectures. <laughs> so this is a map of Africa. It shows military coups and civil wars. I think what's important about this is that it actually shows, first of all, that there have been a number of military coups well into the 2000s, but also the, the outlined countries are the civil wars, and there have actually been more civil war-affected countries than coup-affected countries. So there's been a massive amount of civil war on the continent since independence. This is all since 1960. Since the end of the Cold War, which is when sort of conflict on the continent took a dramatic turn and it stopped being about proxy wars and became much more about sort of internal conflicts that were based on um, organized criminal networks and resource extraction, um, we see that this is the blue is the number of state-based armed conflicts. So these are basically civil wars and it's fairly consistent. I've actually sort of jerry-rigged it with some new data but the, the trends aren't changing. The red line is the number of reported battle deaths. So I'm not going to get into the particularities of the statistics, because these aren't my statistics. They're the best ones that we have. Um, but generally speaking, there's been spikes of violence, but the, the number of battle deaths, the number of people being killed directly from war-related violence has gone dramatically down. So that means that there's all sorts of other violence that's happening, given that the conflicts are the level of conflict is largely staying the same. So part of what I'm talking about today is the sort of structural violence, violence against livelihoods, violence that's non-lethal. And that's mostly what affects women in conflict zones. What's your scale on the... Sorry? So These are the number of state-based armed conflicts, and then this is, sorry, I've covered that, it up, tens of, tens of thousands. Of thousands. Tens of thousands. Yeah. And this is the um, UCD pre, UCDP and PRIO data. So it's from Uppsala. And they have fantastic data collection in so, insofar as we can count anything in war, much less the people that are killed by bullets. So to shift gears quickly, this is um, my summary of the discourse. The hegemonic paradigm is that women are victims and men are perpetrators. And most of the feminist literature on women in war has critiqued this fairly vociferously for quite a long time. Um, that said, the dominant discourse, the dominant way in which we talk about women's experiences in war remains sexual violence. We still see women as victims, and we're mostly concerned with their sexualized victimhood. We're less concerned with the fact that their brothers and husbands and sons are being killed. We're less concerned with the fact that their house is burned down. We're mostly concerned at an advocacy level about the fact that women are being raped and they're being forced into marriage. And that's partly because of the way that media and campaigns work, but it's also because that's the like paragon of women's victimhood. It's the women and children prototype that women are the procreators and progenitors of the nation and that they're being targeted as such. Um, accordingly, sorry the font's a bit small here, studies of wartime sexual violence have increased in tandem with 
the sort of increased advocacy and awareness raising. Here we have, sorry, I just skipped through this, but this is John Kerry, William Hague, and Angelina Jolie in June at the <coughs> summit to end wartime sexual violence. So while these sort of talking head, <coughs> large international human rights campaigns have been going on, we also see that academic work has focused more and more on sexual violence. And I've been part of that, and Dara's been part of that. And the, the research has gotten much, much better. We still have no idea how many women are raped in war, which is frustrating, to say the least. But we're trying to further our understanding of how gender intersects with violence. The unfortunate thing is that this has mostly led to an uncritical adoption of international legal terms following on the tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, which formally made rape a war crime, but they also expanded the definition of wartime rape. And as a result, academics have, researchers have largely adopted the international legal terms in our understanding. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is going to throw the international legal terms out the window. This is obviously a highly political research move, but I'm not making it as a normative claim. So I'm not trying to say that the international legal definition of rape doesn't matter or that the international legal definition of forced marriage doesn't matter. But what's important, I think, is decoupling that from our understanding of what's happening socially within a war context. So we understand that wartime rape means something in a court of law and forced marriage means something in a court of law. But when I talk about gender politics today, I'm not talking about the criminalized aspect of that. I'm trying to get into what the nitty-gritty is of how people interact, how violence manifests, and how the armed groups that I'll talk about or try to organize power around these things. So following on the feminist critique of the, the victimhood aspect of women's experiences in war, there was a sort of second wave, a response, which is that women are agents in war, that they're not actually abject victims of male violence, but they're also determining what happens to them, and they're navigating, and even if victimized, they're making choices in response to their victimhood. So there was a big push in the early 2000s in research in particular, social science research, um, largely coming from anthropology, that tried to look at women's agency. Um, this was partly in response to the realization that women and girls make up 10 to 30% of most non-state armed groups. I'm mostly going to be talking about rebel groups. I'll mostly be talking about the Revolutionary United Front in Sierra Leone. Um, but what's quickly important to note is that women in non-state armed groups make a much higher proportion of participants than in state militaries. State military numbers, with a few exceptions, tend to be much lower levels of women's representation. Is that a question? Actually, I'm just saying you're about to get to it. Okay. So um, why is this? This is, I argue, because of broad-based recruitment that non-state armed groups need more people because they're not supposed to exist. Um, and it's also population-based logistical operations. So a lot of the things that women do in war for non-state armed groups are the things that you know, private contractors like Halliburton or KBR would do for the US military. So they are fighters, spies, signals, which is radio operators. Those are some of the military roles they have. They're also wives and girlfriends, which often if you're um, a non-state armed group that has any territorial control, you'll have a base, and that's where you're going to have your families. Otherwise, they'll be targeted by state forces if they stay at home. Totes means that they carry things. Lots of non-state armed groups can't use the roads, so they'll carry things, particularly in Africa, through the jungle, through bush paths. Um, food production and procurement is huge. So a lot of the women in Sierra Leone spent time farming, uh, preparing food, 
trading across the border into Guinea and Cote d'Ivoire. And then there are a, an enormous number of the medics in non-state armed groups, and then also in state militaries to some extent, are female um, service members. So that's the instrumental approach, which is looking beyond victimhood. I'm focusing more on the social and organizational context. So my argument is that this is the next wave of research. We focused on women as victims. We focused on women as agents and people who participate in violence and perpetrate violence. I'm trying to get but sort of beyond the roles and functions of women and understand gender relations in the organizational context and in the institutional setting of an armed group. So I'm not the only person doing this. There are people who are looking at gender relations and not just women. Um, there's a good amount of research that's sort of more on my end of things looking at command and control and gender leadership and hierarchy. Actually, I'm not sure that there are that many people doing this with a gendered lens, but it sort of fits into an, uh, the next wave of um, civil war research. Without further ado, getting into the case. So the Sierra Leone Civil War, I used to, I've always, <laughs> struggled a lot with how to introduce the case. Um, the easiest way is to ask if anybody's seen the movie Blood Diamond, but I find it really problematic to use Hollywood prototypes to represent and like raise all of the, the flags about our ideas about African wars. So I've decided to just go with the Google search. So this is the Google search. These are the top hits for images of the Sierra Leone Civil War. It was known for child soldiers, which is this as the top hit. Again, these are all <coughs> Sierra Leone. Um, and there was large-scale amputation of civilians and rape of women, and then, of course, the ubiquitous blood diamond. So that's what we know the war for. That's how the war kind of made a splash in the research scene. It's one of the most important cases for understanding civil war in Africa, which is how I first came to it. I also came to it because it's one of the most important cases for understanding sexual violence in war, and particularly sexual violence in war in Africa. And we see very few, if you go back, none of these pictures are pictures of women. They're all pictures of boys and men. So my research began with the question of sort of where are the girls? A brief historical overview. The war started in 1991. 386 people invaded in a two-pronged approach from Liberia. The Liberian Civil War had already kicked off and Charles Taylor already controlled most of that country. So Sierra Leone's the red dot. Liberia's just down the coast from it. Um, the primary antagonist is the Revolutionary United Front. That's the group that I've worked with the most. Um, there are sort of three phases. I won't get into it too much, but there were two military coups. At one point, the RUF actually took power with the second coup, which was led by the army. Um, and so the phases were quite distinct in terms of the, the military strategies that were deployed. I'll get to that in a little bit because I want to talk about how military strategy interacts with gender politics and the controlling of sexual violence um, in particular. But there were a number of different factions. What's remarkable about this war is that the RUF was actually coherent and more or less cohesive for the duration of the war. So it lasted a full decade, but unlike most civil wars in Africa, the main antagonist rebel group didn't actually fractionalize. So they didn't split until the very end, their former leader hightailed it to Liberia where he was later assassinated, uh, but he only took about 300 guys with him and the, the bulk of the rebel group stayed intact. So that's important because what I'm getting to is that gender relations are policed for this sort of group cohesion. A little bit about where my research comes from. Um, I've taken several field trips. 
um, two in 2010, but I've, I've been going to the country since 2008. Um, the purple dots are where I've done sort of a quorum of interviews. Um, they also kind of track my progress around the country. So I've traveled throughout most of the country and I do qualitative field work. So I do interviews with former members of the rebel group. I've also talked to former members of the state armed forces and uh, paramilitary. There was a civil defense force was a key actor in the third phase of the war. Um, I've interviewed over 150 members of the RUF. My initial field work was 50, and that was focused much more on sort of getting a representative sample of all levels of the military of the armed group. And then I focused in my later field work on the sort of higher level interviews because I wanted to get inside information that most sort of low-level participants didn't actually have any knowledge about. Um, I've interviewed, yeah, about a third women and two-thirds men um, with research on women focusing initially on sort of their experiences writ large and later looking at sort of female power. And yeah, I think we can talk about it later. That covers it. <laughs> um, so... Given the title is Gender gender Politics in African Armed Groups, I'm going to be talking quite a lot about gender relations, and sort of the conclusion is that it's political. Um, this is Black Diamond. She's the woman who the talk is titled for. As I said, she's from the Liberian Civil War, so she's not actually from Sierra Leone. But there was a good deal of movement between the two, and there were similar conflict dynamics. So if you'll take my word for that for now, um, that kind of justifies why I'm using her as a, as a visual proxy for some of the dynamics that happened in Sierra Leone. So this, the question of, of who she becomes or where she comes from and how we understand her, is she a post-feminist victim prototype? I don't know what else to call her, but there's this idea that she was victimized by the war, potentially raped. This is the sort of like one woman stands for all women narrative. And then she and her girlfriends took up arms to sort of avenge their rape, protect themselves, and also survive. And so I say post-feminist because there's a intrinsic gendering process that happens where women are trying to ostensibly use their womanhood as a source of power. They're not actually trying to reject their womanhood and be equal to men in the way the EPLF did, which I'll talk about at the end. Um, but this idea that a sort of hyper-violent, hyper-sexual woman is the best way to survive in the war zone. So this is the Google image search for Sierra Leonean, uh, Sierra Leone Civil War and women. As you can see, most of it is victim photos. She's had her arms amputated. Here's one fighter. Other pictures are sort of implicitly sexual. Um, the statistics on sexual violence in the war, because, as I said, this is sort of where our idea of women's experiences tends to start from, both in advocacy and in a, in a research framework. Roughly 17% of Sierra Leonean women, according to Physicians for Human Rights, which has done the only population-based study, 17% um, experienced sexual violence in their lifetime. 8% during the study, which was published in 2002, had experienced war-related sexual violence. Dara's done work... Um, on the Liberia statistics, and they're quite different. It's a neighboring country, similar sort of cultural context, relatively similar uh, political history. And a study there showed that 51% of women had experienced sexual violence. 
So I, I present these statistics side by side to illustrate how difficult it is to draw really strong conclusions about the pervasiveness of sexual violence in society. I think this number is probably low. Um, but there are problems with sampling. There are problems with definitions. Oftentimes, surveys are talking about sort of crime reporting, or they're talking about a, a denuded definition of sexual violence that's kind of coded in the question, but not explicit. Um, the, the Physicians for Human Rights study that's the, the best data we have was conducted in IDP camps. So these were people who'd been displaced by wartime violence for the most part, and they also hadn't been stuck in the RUF. So the, the women that I'm going to talk about today were within the group, and they were therefore living within an incredibly fraught and violent situation. They were not able to escape to IDP camps for the most part, and they were exposed to violence both on a systematic and organizational level, and also incredible levels of interpersonal violence. Here's the, the first story I want to read. Um, I struggle with how to present my data because it's so personal, and I think the numbers are so fuzzy. And I often don't use stories anymore because I, I don't like the prototypical victim narrative. But I think it's impossible to really understand violence if you don't engage with it on a daily basis without the stories. So I've included three stories here. A commander captured all of us, but other men came for my sisters. We stayed together, we did things together, but we didn't live in the same house. I was 15 and my sisters were 13, 12, and 9. The other girl, she was a family friend. They virginated all of us except my small sister. She stayed with me. As soon as they captured us, they virginated us. After that, they took us to the bush, and I stayed there for the rest of the war. I think virgination is fairly straightforward. It's a creo term for the first time that you have sex, and it is a unidirectional uh, linguistic term, and that it's something that men do to women. So virgination came up a lot in my research, and it's in one of the titles of one of my papers. Um, but I've kept it, I've retained it in all of the quotes, even though I've sort of translated this from Creole into English, because I think that the concept of being virginated the first time you have sex being a violent experience is really central to a lot of the interviews and a lot of the stories that women shared with me. And I want to also add the caveat right now that I didn't ask for stories about rape. Um, if you want to talk about research ethics in the Q&A, we can. But I, I certainly didn't ask women for stories about how they'd been raped or how they'd been sexually assaulted. I asked for stories about what was the first time that you met the rebel group or how did you come to join. Um, another woman said, he asked me to come with him. He said the Kamajors, those are the civil defense militia, would kill me if I didn't come with him. He said he was rescuing me. He said he would kill me if I didn't go. He took me to Kono and took me as his wife. We have one child together. There was no alternative. So I've included this quote because there's this interesting paradox where rescue was a violent experience in a lot of these stories, that a lot of the male fighters saw themselves as rescuing the women who were sort of trapped at the front lines, um, and the women mostly saw it as them being captured and them having no alternative. Um, and then this idea that, that you can be taken as someone's wife, forced marriage was incredibly pervasive within the group, and so that comes up again and again. There was a transition from sort of the abject experience of rape or virgination and then the shift into a sort of more institutionalized and formalized relationship that was forced marriage or just marriage, bush marriage. So the places this violence was happening, this is enemy forces, this is the RUF, 
there's this space called no man's land. That was actually what they called it. And all of the fighters that I interviewed thought it was like an official term. Um, so in no man's land, there was basically no law. And that's where if you were a civilian, you didn't belong to anyone. It was possible that you were an enemy civilian, but most of the enemy civilians were in sort of enemy controlled territories. This is government controlled territory. The RUF fighters had their own group of militarized civilians that were either behind the front lines or were living on the bases. And they performed a lot of the sort of logistical functions of the group. They kept the war machine moving, but they also were just supposed to not move onto this side where they could you know, spread secrets or give inside information about the organization. So a lot of the rape and virgination and sort of direct violence was experienced in no man's land. But there was a huge number of women who were on the other side of the RUF fighters circle. Sorry, diagrams are not my forte. Um, but for the, for the leadership of the RUF, there was always this balancing act between letting fighters sort of do what they wanted in no man's land and giving incentives and rewards and having a sort of like blanket autonomy while also having control because no man's land was not only a violent space, but you wanted fighters to come back to the rear and not perform the same levels of violence that they'd been sort of wreaking havoc on in the villages. So going back to that image, mm -hmm. so in essence what you're suggesting is that no man's land functioned as kind of the living space which demonstrates that lesser levels of violence in male controlled territory where women, though they may be victims of violence, may also have protection of males who are perpetrating in other areas. And then that's the space. In this area or here? That on either side, mm -hmm. to the left or to the right, there's some type of... Um, I wouldn't want to call it rule of law, but there's some type of social normscape where women totally. are attached to males who have power and dominance and therefore have less likelihood of violence by other males. Yes. That's exactly where I'm going. So, and we're getting there with the story, as promised. I was the only wife to see Bangora, but some had two, three wives. All the men had wives. Even the 13, 14, 15 years boys had wives in the camp. He treated me like any special person to him. I have his baby now. At that time, I liked him. I could not see my family, and he gave me encouragement and special treatment. I never tried to run away. Some of them, they try to run away, but I talk to them, and I say, wait, the war will end soon. As for me, I didn't want to stay. I was not happy. I stayed because he took my womanhood, and I'm not in contact with my parents. I was afraid of being killed by CDF and SLA. Again, that's the government and the militia. I was a big woman in the camp. The other women didn't run away because I said not to. So in war, power is protection, effectively. Anytime you try to say something profound, you always have to add caveats, I think. So power is also something that will potentially <coughs> attract suspicion. It will attract threats. Um, and it can cost you your life, but for the most part, power and protection went hand in hand. Female power in the RUF um, operated largely at the individual level. There wasn't a sort of collective group uh, power dynamic for women. It operated on age, which in Sierra Leonean society usually means that older women are more respected. Um, I like this, martial status and marital status. There's nothing like a typo to show you the the wonders of the juxtaposition. Uh, martial status was training, fierceness, whether you had weapons. So women who had weapons in the camps were often feared and they could threaten other women and also protect themselves to some extent. 
Uh, women who were trained were more likely to be somewhat respected by the men. In a lot of the interviews that I did, men said the women were just like us. They fought just like us. But then there were the women that weren't fighters, and they were often protected by their marital status. So who you married had a lot to do with how much power you had. Um, often when uh, a girl, and they're usually usually girls initially, obviously like women age during war, which we tend to forget. Um, but young women, often if they had a, a sort of less powerful male partner, if he was killed, they would then try to find somebody who was slightly more powerful, or if they were girls who were being taken care of by a commander's wife, and somebody proposed love or proposed marriage to them, they would take that offer because it was a better way to gain social security and protection than just being somebody's sort of servant or domestic house girl, or than being somebody sort of very powerless male fighter's girlfriend. Um, education and political background was also important. This is particularly as the RUF became more established, women who had skills would then be sort of recruited into the pseudo-political morass that was the RUF's terrible bureaucracy. Um, and then social capital. This is something that I've sort of come to a bit later, but the RUF had a really complicated relationship with pre-existing social structures. On the one hand, they wanted to appropriate them and have women who had social power before the war or in peace settings use that power and leverage within the wartime sort of context, within the armed group. On the other hand, they were trying to sort of overcome and overpower and overthrow these traditional power structures that they didn't have access to within the state. So there was a, there was a bit of a tension here. Um, there are secret societies that operate in Sierra Leone that are an important source of female power in peacetime in particular. The RUF had a very tenuous relationship with them. They didn't genu generally trust them because they're secret. They're not accessible to men. Um, but town mothers and mommy queens, which operate in the open, they don't have secret power, but they have public power. That was appropriated by the RUF. And they did use town mothers and mommy queens to try to control women who were within sort of RUF territory. Now, if this is individual female power, it begs the question of women with power, what do they do for other women? And this is one of the questions that we ask a lot at WAP. We talk about sort of what's the role of women in politics? Is there some sort of quota effect? Are women in power going to create sort of pro-woman policies? In the RUF, there is not a lot of evidence to suggest that women with power in military groups are sort of engendering a feminist revolution in a military setting. So this is one of the powerful women. Um, I know her quite well. She still runs schools. She became the Minister of Education for the RUF and was one of the representatives at the peace talks. Um, she was asked in a, this is from, a, I took this from a court hearing, did you receive any personal protection from any of these key people in the RUF? She says, when they realized that this was my area, all of them protected me. And when they explained the good things I did, he, the leader, grew to love me so much and developed interest in me. We had no other relationship. The commanders usually said that I was the pappy's wife. This is the leader. He proposed love to me, but I refused because he had so many girlfriends, and I'm very jealous. So she is a very senior woman. She had age, she had education, and then she also had the sort of like local social power um, and social capital that was being appropriated by the RUF leadership. She had so much of it that she actually could refuse the overall commander's advances. So what the RUF did was they tried to formalize female power. And they did this through parallel hierarchies throughout the military and the civilian settings. They had um, a female military hierarchy, they had the women's armed corps, and they had female training commanders. 
they had a judicial system and an organizational system that was supposed to organize all the women to go do farming or organize all the women to go beat rice. Um, that was the women's task force and the wives' commanders. And then there was this sort of political self-organizing aspect of female, um, female political activity, for the most part, in the RUF. And that was the Revolutionary United Sisters Organization, which was a very elite group of women who were the wives of commanders. And they organized themselves in the last three years of the war or so. And they actually had a lot of tensions with the military fighters, particularly the senior women who'd been in the RUF for a long time. There was this perception that the, the commanders' wives hadn't done anything for the revolution. They weren't real fighters. They weren't real revolutionaries. And they were just usurping power that the military women was, were the rightful recipients of. And then there was a widow's group that um, another woman who I think I can call a friend at this point founded with other women, and that was a sort of senior women who didn't want to take other husbands. They didn't want other relationships in the RUF. They were done with a sort of male power as a source of protection, and they created political space for themselves to do humanitarian work. So they had these sort of like skill-building seminars, and they would try to feed orphans, and this was within a rebel group during war, right? So there's a lot of things that happen in war that aren't the sexual violence, and I'm trying to understand how that power operates. So the conclusions that I drew from kind of uncovering all of this is that inclusion of women does not necessarily equal power. Having a parallel hierarchy doesn't mean that women have equal power. It just means that there's a sort of woman commander who works alongside the male commander, and that doesn't necessarily generate equal levels of respect, particularly amongst male fighters, but also amongst female. Two questions. Would it be correct to say that um, this is pretty gender segregated? And the competition that might take place is really within sex. And so maybe then I'm not quite as surprised that women mm -hmm. don't have women. That what, sorry? That women don't have women. Mm -hmm. Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand, am I in effect competing with other women right. for these positions, not just for um, kind of the, the highest alpha male, but I'm also competing with women for these hierarchical positions in my part of the military. Mm -hmm. Or am I also competing with men? I think that's a really important point. There's certainly, the competition for men in a sort of romantic and social sphere is the most important. That's where competition was the most direct, and particularly amongst multiple wives. If you were the senior wife, you were seen as having the upper hand, but the junior wives would then be really like abused to keep them in their position. In the military, um, the formalized military hierarchy, competition is complicated. I haven't read any studies on competition within military hierarchies, but it's such a formalized promotion structure that you, you can only really demonstrate on a meritocratic basis your prowess at the battlefront. And so then if you look at women trying to compete in a, in a military setting, I don't think that there were strong enough indicators of what a successful fighter would look like at the front lines. I mean, it was incredibly chaotic, right? So it's not like, oh, I've hit 12 targets and you only hit four. Um, that, would, that would get you a promotion. But the promotional system as well was really bizarre in the RUF and that the overall commander kind of threw promotions around and then he would take them back. Um, so I think that there was a good deal of competition between women, but it happened more in the private sphere than in the formal setting. And that's where you see this sort of like group competition, I think, becomes really interesting where you have these constituencies of militarized women and sort of non-military women fighting against each other. You actually see more cohesion in a, in a social, interpersonal way when there is a kind of subgroup with which to affiliate, if that makes sense. Hannah? 
in all candor reminds me a lot of suburbia, just looking at some people who have their power based on their husband's mm -hmm. status, you know, and then there's some people who are gaining their status through their paid labor or something. I mean, it's right. not that different. But I was interested in, um, <laughs> um, I mean, there's competition and, yeah. know, I mean, all this stuff. But um, how are you, to like, getting it for a higher level, but... Um, I, I'm confused by how you're using the word power, and I was wondering if you could sort of engage kind of theoretically with how you're thinking of that. Is mm -hmm. this like this subjective construction of power? Do you have some sort of like political theoretical definition of power that you're working with? Or yeah. know, how, how are you thinking about this? Because I'm, I'm kind of well, reaching for that. Yeah. Yes. That's the million dollar question. It's also um, all suggestions are welcome because I'm supposed to be drafting a memo on women's power to end war for 2015 for um, a massive international conference that's happening because they have definitions for women and we know how to problematize it vis-a-vis -vis gender and war. We can also work on the definitions. Power is really hard. Um, I think there's the one definition which is the power equals protection where it's sort of what power gets you is a way of understanding it but that doesn't tell you anything it's too endogenous, right? Like you can't define power by the thing that it accomplishes. Um, and also understanding power vis-a-vis -vis social capital and social relations, again, I think you, then you're defining it almost by the instrument itself. Um, and so I struggle with definitions of power. I think that's why I deconstruct where it comes from first, because I am still trying to understand what is gendered power and how is it different? Yeah, Victoria. And I think you may find what power is and how you would define it would shift based on where in the conflict, in the arc of the conflict. Mm -hmm. Because I think you'll find what power is, how it's used, what it gets you, who acquires it and how. It's going to shift at those different facets. Mm -hmm. So the idea that power means that one thing or one particular set of things through the arc of the conflict, I think, is um, a simplification because people right. are standing far back. Yes, it's very sticky. And also you're sort of, the, the environment in which you can affect change is, is dramatically shifting, right? And it's also, it shifts even as you move, it shifts as your status shifts. If you get a promotion, that changes how you engage with power. Yes. But isn't power in the social sense power over others? And can't you get a definition of power by whom you have power over? That's one of the definitions, sure. Um, but there's, you know, there's the power to, there's the power over. So, I mean, there's power as sort of influence to affect change. And I think then it's so like change of and change where. I mean, I, this is naive and spontaneous. No. I would see it as always being able to be interpreted or defined by those groups that you have power over. Even if it's power to affect a change, to block a challenge, to block it. Right. See, I, I think it could almost always be seen, always be seen in terms of those who have power. But I'm just throwing that out there. Because otherwise it's quite similar to agency. You know, because agency is about capability mm -hmm. to kind of take decisions and pursue yeah, kind of your decisions. And then power brings in, I guess, the dimension of somehow kind of affecting others. You might just take one definition. Right. And help it use it to help organize you. Like so, like French and Raven. I don't know how much they would get used by political scientists, but they have like 
you know, reference, they have sort of expertise-based power, they have sort of social network-based power, like, you know, I mean, they, there's a lot, there are the frameworks out there, there are conceptual frameworks related to power where you could just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to organize this, you know, and then you could sort mm -hmm. of talk about similarities, you know, motives and the right. of resources to, to achieve particular aims, control over and integrate them. It just might help with because you're you're in that you're in that space where you're being both inductive you're inductive but then right. there's this literature you need to integrate with and so there yes there there are lots of good literatures I'm gonna park this I'd like to come back to it I'm almost done um, because I think one of the things that you know power is a word that that I almost use I, I use it fluidly almost intentionally because it's needed to kind of get from one thing to the next but it's not power is not the sort of the central question for this particular paper um, and so yeah I'll, I'll get to power at the end we can circle back but one of the things that's really remarkable about the RUF is that they actually used all these sort of bureaucratic trappings so one of to, to kind of carry on this power through line until we get to the questions um, there's sort of form we talk about formal power and informal power at least in political science we do and, and we're not particularly precise with that either. But formal power in the RUF was really interesting because it was it was documented. It was written down. So these are all papers that I've gotten from um, individuals that I've interviewed who managed to keep some of their documents and didn't burn them all when they set up the special court for war crimes. Um, so I had no idea these existed my first couple of field trips. And then somebody mentioned that they burned all their documents. And I was like, what? Uh, and then sort of I kind of would gently ask like oh do you have anything from the war any papers that you could show me so I have a I have a very large stack of documents um, they've all been cataloged this is actually this is about food and citizens at the front line so it's it's not some of the gender uh, documentation that I have but what's interesting about these documents is that they actually tra they track policy change within the RUF over time so there were memos that went back and forth between the the sort of RUF chief in one of the, the chiefdoms um, and the leader of, of the revolution. And they were talking about, what do we do about these AWOL soldiers? They kept leaving the front lines and going back to the rear. And it was, oh, well, you know, it's a problem that they're trying to go visit their wives and girlfriends. We need to bring the women closer to the front lines so that the men don't travel as far. Um, that sort of shifted into this idea that we really wanted to prevent rape. So rape was actually outlawed by the RUF. But there were massive levels of rape against women, partly in that sort of no man's land that I was talking about earlier, but also at the rear. And so to get to this question about competition and, and power and infighting, um, marriage was institutionalized within the RUF, and that was one of the most important ways that the leadership tried to control women within the group. So women were largely civilians, but also they were trained. The trained women, as far as I can tell from anecdotal and like extensive anecdotal research, um, they were married at roughly equal rates to the civilian women. And so marriage, which is this really sort of suburban, um, classical form of, of policing gender relations in society, was used by the RUF mostly to control competition and violence between men. So they didn't want men going to the rear while somebody else was at the front line and messing around with your girl or your wife. And so marriage became this really strict form of saying, that, and they had the sort of, the women's task force was partly in the adjudication space for like who's married to who, you'd have to petition, oh, I'd like to marry. The men would say, I would like to marry this woman. They would ascertain whether or not you could provide for her. So that was whether you could shelter her, protect her, and feed her. Um, and so there are these sort of masculine, trappings of masculinity that were really important in framing gender relations as well. 
So that was the arc in the first four years. They wanted to outlaw rape. They wanted to keep men at the front line. And they used, they used marriage as an official framework for doing that. Um, what then happened was there was an Operation Find Girl, which was a phase when young women were actually being sort of forcibly joined into the group and abducted at, for the purpose of being wives. That was eventually cut off because it was seen as bringing too many sort of non-trained mouths to feed into the rebel sphere when the rebels didn't have very much ammunition, they didn't have very many supplies. So there was this sort of temporary phase in 1994-95, which is the sort of middle of the war, um, where marriage was actually being promoted actively. From that time onward, it was shut down, and it became, again, a status symbol. But uncovering these laws on marriage in a military setting, in a rebel group, it, that's sort of how I came to understand how contextualized female power is and how contingent it is on relationships. So whether it's the power of having protection, whether it's the power of having influence, it's operating through what are fairly traditional and universal frameworks for, for policing gender. What's interesting is that this has been sort of true in most rebel groups in Africa. This is the EPLF. They're seen as the sort of emancipatory prototype. They have huge numbers of women. They have a very progressive gender platform. Um, they had a marriage law, not, not that dissimilar to the RUF, but much more refined and progressive, that was based on the free choice of both partners, monogamy, and the equal rights of both sexes, legal guarantees of the interests of women and children. Um, marriage was prohibited initially because it was seen as a, as a distraction and as also introducing too many civilians into the group, um, but then it was institutionalized as a way of sort of formalizing uh, social inclusion and participation. I don't want to mess up the pictures, but I'm about to change the slide. <laughs> The, uh, I've called it the subordination prototype. I just pulled these names out like when I was making the slides. But the Lord's Resistance Army is basically the other end of that spectrum. Um, again, with really formalized laws for forced marriage. So this is in Uganda. Here's a tiny little map. That's where Uganda is. Um, this is Joseph Kony and all of his leaders. I chose this picture because I think it shows that there are no women in the leadership here. Um, and forced marriage was a formal policy to reward commanders, but it was also used to actively discourage immoral behavior. So this is similar to the RUF leadership's rationale that we want people to be married so that they don't rape. Raping civilians undermines our cause politically. It also leads to sort of an extravagant and um, uncontrollable use of violence that's not actually for military ends. So the LRA had something similar. And again, like the RUF, rape and sexual violence were supposedly punishable by death or severe uh, physical abuse. question on the forced marriage on the, on the Uganda. Yeah. Is that something that uh, is triggered by the girl soldiers sort of career? Like, so you have like child soldier on the girl side and they get into the marriage when they grow up? Or I, not? I don't know. Okay. Um, there hasn't been very much systematic research done on it. Aaron Baines uh, has done a couple of focus groups and so that's where kind of this framework comes from. Um, but as far as I know, you didn't necessarily age into marital relations. It was more like child brides effectively being forced okay. to marry commanders, um, but often trained or at least taught to use a gun. If you live in a commander's house, there will be guns around, and they want you to know what to do with them if somebody attacks while the commander is away. So just to conclude, um, 
This is from Hudson Caprioli et al. They talk about microaggressions of gender inequality. Um, I don't think these are micro, but that's an aside. The lack of bodily integrity and physical security, lack of equity in family law, and the lack of parity in decision making. Um, these all apply to and help explain women's experiences in war. We tend to focus on bodily integrity and physical security, and in particular, sexual violence. I argue that family law, marriage, sort of traditional social structures, and then also leadership and decision-making are equally important, if not more important, for understanding how number one happens and who it happens to. So a lot of my research and what, I, what I'm trying to do here is just present some of that space, some of the mechanisms that women use or have at their disposal to either access power through which they're being oppressed in a military setting, and particularly in the sort of rebel group, which is, it's important to, to reiterate that rebel groups are created from nothing, right? Like, they, they might have been a political movement, it might have been a, a criminal organizational structure, but for the most part, they didn't exist in society, and then suddenly they not only exist, but they're waging war against an internationalized state-based armed force. So I think they're a really fascinating space for understanding how these gendered structures are used both for and against women, for and against militarization. And I'll just end with Simone de Beauvoir, who says that all oppression creates a state of war. War, in turn, creates gendered states of oppression. So what are these spaces of oppression? And how do we get beyond just understanding the violence, but also the structures that facilitate them? I think we have time for some questions. Thank you. At the back. Yes. Um, basically, the women that got to go to the peace talks were the senior political women and the commander's wives. And so this was part of the grievance between the military women who'd been in the war since they invaded from Liberia. They didn't necessarily get to go. Um, what I haven't done yet is sort of parallel research in the civil society sphere, because I'm interested in looking at how sort of the, to go back to power, but how women's power in sort of peace context or nonviolent, like deliberately nonviolent context, how it maps on to women's power in violent context, and if there's sort of intentional sacrifices, compromises, and strategic choices that women make in a military setting that are very different than the choices that women make when militarization isn't framing all of their decisions. So I have to go over, but I wanted to thank you so much for sharing your fascinating research. And, and is there any way for us to get in touch with you? Yes, um, absolutely. I'm on the web website. I think that's probably the easiest way. Um, you can Google me. That sounds like really self-promotional, but you know, this is a pro-women gender equal space. So I'm going to say you can, you can Google me. Um, I'm at these two places. And please drop me an email. Just tell me how I know you, and then I'll be hopefully more responsive. But yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's a very important question, and I'm giving you an exploratory that answer. Sort of a gendered, like, an interesting gender mystery. 
Right. Oh, well, and also... The power structure that they allows them to exert power over women can also translate to them exerting power over yeah, Right. Women in the RUF never had power over military structures. There were no key strategic decision makers in the RUF who were female. The top training commander was a woman, and she was feared by men and women. She was, interestingly enough, she was actually Liberian, and she's back in Liberia. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about women's power over other women is that it was either the sort of persuasive power of, oh, I would encourage them and tell them not to run away, which was not actually intended to inflict harm, but it was women who'd made the choice to stay thinking it was their best strategic decision, they tried to encourage sort of subordinate women to make that same choice. Um, it was either that or it was very coercive and very violent. So it was the sort of, I heard lots of stories from women who would talk about the first wives were horrible or they would be threatened. And a number of the women that I've worked with say that the women in the RUF were far worse than the men, which is a really troubling thing to try to report in a sort of advocacy-oriented research framework. A quick point on that is just some, some feminist literature talks about women actually exert negative power over other women when they have no power in male structures. Right? Mm -hmm. So then the theory would be if they were, you know, they actually have more power over, or more oppressive to other women when they're not being recognized, their power sort of extinguishing in male structures. Yes, yeah, I think that that would probably follow through quite nicely. If you have um, references you want to give me later, Just that would be great. I don't think that it's having no power in male structures, though. I think that there's a degree of autonomy that, that women sort of were permitted from men. I mean, the, the least powerful, most abject women in the group didn't have the most power over other, other women, that there's this sort of permissive space uh, where women are women controlling other women works in favor of patriarchy and it works in favor of a militarized patriarchy. So there's, there's a sort of um, passing the buck, if you will, where powerful women are able to facilitate violence against other women and it not only kind of legitimize it, legitimizes it um, in a sort of oppressive social structure, but it also just makes it more efficient, right? Yes, Jenny and then Iris and then Susie and Thanks. No, I thought it was great and really rich and long-running research. I had a couple of points. One was I understand the kind of reaction against kind of the focus on women as victims and mm. sexual violence and war and so on. But I think it's kind of important as well not to kind of overplay the dichotomy that you had about the kind of violence, equality and decision-making and so on. Because in a sense, they're really kind of bound up together. And in particular, because we know that the intimate partner violence rates are so high that marriage is indeed no protection mm -hmm. against violence. And I think that the highest recorded rates of violence were in fact in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, during the war, but intimate partner violence was something like 70%. Yeah. You know, so you have to be careful, like, it's not to buy into these ostensible justifications for marriage that, you know, the LRA or others were putting for marriage because, you know, these women were being kind of beaten up at home as well yeah. in the family. Um, so I guess that's the first kind of observation. The second one was that the other characteristics that you were talking about are shocking in terms of the high rates of violence and the coercion first sexual experience and early marriage. But again, they're kind of systemic characteristics of a number of kind of African societies. And as you showed, civil war has also been kind of endemic as well on the continent, but it's a bit difficult to kind of untangle 
you know, what's being exacerbated? You know, is it just kind of pre-existing kind of conditions being exacerbated or in fact, you know, we kind of broadly observing behaviours that would, you know, often taking place in any case. Mm -hmm. um, didn't really get a, a good sense about that. I mean, I know that wasn't the object of the exercise, but insofar as it's kind of war and these things, the question is, I guess, how different is it, you know, yeah. from all kind of normal kind of circumstances? I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that the marriage doesn't equal protection because that's not actually, I wasn't trying to suggest that at all, but I think there are certain things that I know so deeply I forget to foreground them. So the whole point of women having to use sort of forced marriage to access protection is that they're, they're trapped in these incredibly coercive and violent spaces, right? So the, that was the first three stories or quotes that I read is, is all about how like he would he would beat me, but I had no one else, or he forced me to do this. I mean, it was incredibly, incredibly coercive. So that these marriage relationships are not safe spaces by any stretch. I mean, it was endemic with intimate partner violence. That's not to say that there weren't some couples that were genuinely sort of, um, they describe themselves as in love, they're still together now, they had a fairly reciprocal and equal negotiation space within their relationship. But yes, the vast majority, of their, I mean, there was like a, a, an age dynamic, there was a, a physical size dynamic, there was a weapons dynamic. These were, these were not spaces that were rife with agency and choice by any stretch of the imagination. And they were, they were really bad. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like, oh, but marriage is better. I mean, marriage is rape, right? Like this is not voluntary sexual relationships and voluntary intimate partnerships. Um, so thank you for, I totally agree, and for mentioning that. Um, and just quickly on the sort of, are these, are these patterns that we're seeing in, in peacetime societies just being sort of hyper-violent in war? I think there's a degree to which that happens. No man's land is where I think we see that transgressive war-specific violence where you're deliberately violating taboos as a way of kind of pushing away the enemy, terrorizing the enemy. A lot of Dara's research on gang rape talks about this. I mean, gang rape is not a sort of traditional part of Sierra Leonean culture or society by any stretch. And so that was very particular to the war. But having multiple wives is not particular to the war. Um, having wives that are much younger than the men is not particular to the war. The, the uh, PHR study that I used to talk about the rates of sexual violence, it finds that the vast majority of women, I think it's about 85% in Sierra Leone, believe that domestic violence is acceptable. So, so a lot of the violence that we see within sort of RUF relationships isn't going to look that different than non-RUF relationships, except that these are people who are at the front lines and they're coming home, they're on drugs, they have, you know, their PTSD and other psychological issues happening. So it, it is not normal. Mm -hmm. the, the, the way it was described to me in interview after interview is like, this was war, or that was war. It was a marriage by arm. Yes. Um, I, I'm still thinking about your second to last slide where you talked about, you don't have to go, okay. go there, but three <laughs> different aggressions. Yes. And how, and I'm wondering about the correlations between them. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I, I mean, I'm also struck, you know, as someone who knows very, very little about this topic, how much difference there really is between the different co uh, countries. And Uganda is kind of in my mind. I, so, for example, I'm asking myself, is that a best, better structure? It feels more egalitarian right. than some of the other environments that you described. And is that actually translating into, so is more agency translating into? more power or less power against women or less right. protection. Um, so I'm working on these correlations between those three and trying yeah. to understand 
um, are they related to the countries? So is it different in Uganda, um, for example, than in Sierra Leone or Liberia? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is sort of what Hudson and Caprioli's research looks at. They look at gender norms at a cross-national level, um, but then they don't go into, obviously, they don't go into the armed groups themselves. I think I share your question. I don't have the answer. One of the things that I think is really important is looking at group ideology and how they frame women's access to agency autonomy, bodily autonomy, livelihoods autonomy. Um, so in the LRA... There was, I mean, this was basically like <laughs> child brides of commanders. They didn't have a lot of power, but then they would have, to go back to the point about power over other women, they would have power over other women. So their status was elevated, but their sort of, their choice and their ability to kind of self-determine what they wanted to do was not. Um, the EPLF, which is the Eritrean Liberation Force, they, um, they had a gender egalitarian framework for marriage. And so one, I think, is like hewing to very traditional, fairly regressive gender norms within marriage, and the other is much more progressive. Um, but I don't know to what extent that varies on a sort of country-specific basis, or if it's more about the ideology that the groups kind of pick and choose from, because it is this, this weird, like, some of armed groups are formed, some of rebel groups in particular are formed based on the societies from which they come, but there's also, like, they're basically all, like, Maoist, <laughs> you know, and then they've been trained, a number of leaders of rebel groups have actually come from the ranks of the, the state army, and so those state armies, for the most part, have been trained by Britain or the U.S., so the RUF had this weird pastiche of, like, U.S. Marine leadership attributes and then, like, Maoist proclamations about not taking a needle or a thread from the masses. So I don't know where the balance falls on how much of it's determined by the existing social context of the society and how much of it is the sort of institutional and instrumental approach chosen by the leadership. And then that's kind of assuming that the leadership can enforce the balance that they want, right? Then there's the whole like organic question of like, well, what are the troops doing anyway if they're in their own country because we're talking about civil war? Um, so I know that's not much of an answer, but it is, it is a really interesting question, and I think ideology is a really important next direction for future research. Also in the marriage, um, I, I, found it, I found it really interesting to see how um, this has been institutionalized at, within the movement, and um, I recently heard a podcast on ISIS and mm -hmm. how... Um, they abduct a lot of women and force them into marriage. And in that context, observers have, have talked about um, using marriage as a tool of rooting the movement in the civilian society on a local level. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering and curious um, whether you found any indication, indication of that in your own research or whether that is in fact um, something that you know is rather cultural or ideological depending on whether I, my research suggests that it's a really effective tool of building social cohesion to keep men in the group because there's less of an impulse to leave the group for sort of relationships and sex. Um, so to some extent it works in that regard, but I don't think it's a good marketing strategy for the civilian population. So what happened in the RUF was women were cut off, girls were cut off from their families effectively. It wasn't that they became somehow, the RUF became better grounded in 
civilian society, but rather that those women and girls became cut off from their social networks entirely. Um, I think the same thing is happening with Boko Haram when those 250-odd girls were abducted. Um, there's not really strong evidence that they were actually all trafficked for slavery and profit-making. I think a lot of them are probably still with the armed group. Um, ISIS, I don't, I don't know if they're keeping their sort of forced wives in ISIS-controlled territory, in which case it would work for group cohesion, but I wouldn't see it as something that's necessarily going to help sort of fertilize the group in non-militarily controlled spaces. Any other? Yeah. Um, sort of piggybacking on that, Maya Bloom, I think, has mm -hmm. recently been looking at that and discussing how, even to the effect of how sexual violence is used first to shame women and then there's these older women who come in and say, look, now, in a sense, you put your family at jeopardy or your life at jeopardy that you have shamed them and brought dishonor to them. You can reclaim that by being a suicide bomber or something this way so that there's a couple of women that she, I'm not sure if she actually interviewed any of them or she's just basing this on other people's research, but 40 some odd women that they've essentially recruited by playing on this sort of paternalistic older woman model of, of many of the types of power that you outline here. And then you ask this question about, of course, is it oppression or um, protection? And it's, it's very much this um, similar dynamic. Um, and then I think also piggybacking on what you raised, um, looking at how the sort of, both first the rhetoric of empowerment of women in, in Nepal with the Maoist insurgency there, or with the Tamil Tigers, you find a lot of this repetition of these parallel um, power dynamics, this recreated sort of gender dynamics and social political power organization in a militarized setting that creates new forms of uh, oppression and asymmetry and whatnot that are very much, it seems, this sort of constructed out of the new necessities and, and so forth. And it's interesting then to say, is it ideological, is it cultural, is it so many of these factors that go in and if you could maybe continue on that a little bit more in terms of this just construction of these new social organizational structures that you mentioned in the beginning with your new direction and interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to Iris's question, right? That there's, um, rebel groups have to do something with gender. And so what their strategy is, I mean, one of the things that I think sometimes it's helpful to look backwards rather than forwards from the creation of the group. And so what we, ha what we see happening in a lot of the sort of Asian cases that you, that you mentioned, um, particularly with like the Tamil Tigers, is that women who did rise the rank to the r like tops of the ranks in the military setting were actually then sort of shunted out of political power when the group had a seat at the table. Um, and we see similar, there's not been much research on the RPF, for example, in Rwanda, but that's a really interesting case for me because there were these women that had fairly prominent military <coughs> roles and then there's this huge quota system, like 40% of the parliamentarians in Rwanda are women, but actually most of them don't have a military background, and a lot of their power isn't that you know, broadly effective. And that's, I think that partly speaks to the sort of, in the States we would talk about an old boys network, that there is a degree to which the decision making isn't happening in formal settings. Formal settings, formal power structures after war are often used as a sort of reward. Um, and the reward isn't necessarily going to go to the women who had military power because they would potentially threaten the male leader's power. So I, I think that this, this question of, like, is a parallel structure parallel but subservient is, is really important. Um, 
I bet that is probably more universally consistent than whatever rhetoric they choose for framing marriage, for example. Whether you have a really traditional gender norm for marriage or a sort of progressive gender norm, the EPLF is a classic case of women having this like profoundly progressive liberation narrative for their participation in the war and then being shunted not even to the back of the bus but off the bus in what's now a very still militarized uh, regime. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting how a militarized re regime once in power no longer needs to create a female space because it's not necessary for recruitment. They have formal power. What is the social dynamic for the women who had significant military efficacy in the movement? I.e., we've talked a lot about women's roles, how they related to the male leader who had power and what their course of situation was. What about the females who have military power? Like, they have relationships with men in the unit or women in the unit? Some did. Um, the woman who was the top-ranking female training commander, or sorry, the top-ranking training commander, period, she allegedly had multiple boyfriends, um, which I think is interesting. As far as I can tell, that's an urban legend, but it's one that's perpetuated by men who were basically terrified of her and thought, I mean, she, she used violence just like male training commandants. Like, she was not, to, to speak to the question of whether women are, like, inherently peaceful, she, she definitely wasn't. Um, <laughs> other... Other women who've had a lot of military power, I think it's, it's hard to disentangle your question from the historical trajectory that they had within the group. So these are the women who are sort of aggrieved at the end because they were being pushed aside for the commander's wives. I um, I'm really interested is, was there a second social dynamic and second gender narrative, i.e., did women who had the military power not to be, perhaps not to be coerced into a situation? Did they find a different type of social dynamic within the unit, i.e., even if it was a microspace, mm -hmm. was there any space where, in essence, being able to fully participate as a military agent, mm -hmm. did that buy you respect? Mm -hmm. Did it buy you availability of male companionship in the absence of the coercive frame? Mm -hmm. Did it create a boundary where you were seen as genderless? You know, right. what did it do? Yeah, I think that's like that's really the crux of the question, right? Is how did how did powerful military women use right. their gender? And for the most part there were some who chose to kind of create this gender neutral identity that was androgynous and violent and threatening. Um, those were the women that were using drugs, they were going to the front lines, they were volunteering to go to the front lines. There weren't very many of them, but they did kind of they created this aura, um, of, of power that wasn't that dissimilar from men that were trying to be powerful in a violent space. And then the other women who did have like advanced military training, often what happened is they would opt out of the military power dynamic. So, so having that military power usually meant that they'd been in the group for longer um, because training kind of fell off at the end. And so once they got pregnant, they would become wives and access that power and not demonstrate their sort of ability to use force as a way of gaining power. And so it became a very Were maternal... Were military, military women who then you're saying opted for that other thing? Were they choosing their partner? Some of them. It yeah. depends. It really. It's so. It's so contingent on each person. For yeah. for those women, a lot of them were forced into the first relationship and then chose the second relationship when their first partner was killed. A, a lot of the women I talked to. 
Also, I should, like, it's worth remembering that probably 30% of the women ran away at some point. So whether or not they had military power, like, when we're talking about women who are still there at the end, we're only talking about the ones who, who never thought that the best choice was to try to run, which I think is interesting. Right, 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 right. Anyway, I think maybe we should end there. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Very powerful work. Thank you very much for being with us. Um, I hope you all come join us next week. Alexandra Fondine is uh, assistant professor at the Erasmus School of Economics, um, Department of Finance there, and she is going to talk about risk in the background, how men and women respond. So.